This is Talking Space being recorded 23 December 2018. I'm Gene LaFalca. The rest of the team is taking some well-deserved time off. Um, Sawyer Rosenstein, if you know, if you follow him on social media, he is not feeling too well. Sawyer, if you're listening, I wish you all the best and uh, get well real soon for the rest of the team, uh, and including you too, Sawyer. I am looking forward to the day when we're all gathered behind these microphones again. This is a big load to carry on your shoulders alone, but uh, we're going to go ahead and slog through. This week marks the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 8 mission, the first uh, mission that took human beings around the moon. Um, They were able to go ahead and take a look at the lunar surface with human eyes as well as uh, photography and what have you. And I thought about how I want to go ahead and commemorate this 50th anniversary because it was the very first time that we humans left the cradle of Earth and went around somewhere that we had never evolved in or we'd never taken a look at. Um, It also marked the end of, in my mind anyway, it marked the end of the space race. That, to me, was the finish line with, with the moon clear signal to the then Soviet Union that we had the, not only did we have the technology to go ahead and do the, do a lunar landing, but we also had um, the will to do it. And uh, to me, that kind of signaled, that was really where it began right there. Uh, Apollo 11, in my mind, is really where the affirmation of that. So what were we going to do to go ahead and commemorate this? And I thought for a little bit that I was going to go ahead and take some sound bites from the ceremony a couple of weeks ago at the National Cathedral, uh, where uh, we had many inspirational speakers. Two of them included uh, NASA Administrator Jim Bridenstine, who gave a grand speech on the real situation that was behind Apollo 8, and you really got a good appreciation for what a roll of the dice this really was. And, of course, one of the other speakers was uh, Gene Lovell, who was the uh, command module pilot on the flight, giving his insights of what the mission meant to him. And I was going to go go ahead and underline how dangerous the mission was and so on and so forth. But I kept reading articles spinning around uh, that time period thought, gosh darn it, people are doing it already. And they were doing it in such a way that was well better than I ever could. Everything I read really, really underscores how dangerous 
really was with a roll of the dice of human lives and how we just <laughs> really dependent on, on technology and wherewithal, if you will, to get through to eat through that mission. And they had also talked about it too and that what one of the missions to really revitalize the history and what turning point it really was in the history of the country. We were, as a culture, trying to figure out new ways of tearing the country to shreds rather than unite it. And there is no movement like some of them that we did later, but we really, the country really was shattered in 1968 uh, with everything that that was going on. And in the end, through this National Aeronautics and Space Administration, rolling the dice of ending it in such a hopeful note for the future. That was my initial thought to go ahead and present it as a theme. But I decided no, because everybody else was doing the same thing, and they were doing it in such a such a better manner. So I thought, okay, um, with the team down, what do I do with this? And I was just listening to some of the uh, air-to-ground transmissions uh, that were out there on uh, on the internet, and it hit me Saturday night as to what to do. I decided today to put to try to put this together as quickly as possible. I thought, gee whiz, what what would it be like if Talking Space was around in 1968? How would we sound? How would we bring this? This mom- these momentous two days in the history of human exploration to you. And the more and more I listened to the air to ground and a few other things that I found on the internet, which were perfectly in the public domain for anybody to go ahead and, and take a look at, I thought, you know, gosh darn it, I could probably put something together like this and hopefully do it rapidly so I can make the holiday, but also put it out there for all of you that that may not have remembered Apollo 8, who may not have been there, and try to get a little bit of that flavor to you. So I thought, what would this program sound like if it was around in 1968? What would we do with it? And how would we present it to you, our listeners? That's what this show is. So, without further ado, here's a little bit of an experiment I concocted. I hope you enjoy it. This may fall flat. It may not work uh, because we I, I did it rather rapidly. But I'm hoping that it will at least entertain and inform, which is what we try to do here on this program. So, without further ado, let's hop into the time machine and go back to 1968 and Christmas time. Good day and Merry Christmas from our headquarters in New York, and welcome to a special edition of Talking Space being recorded Christmas Day, 1968. 
I'm Gene McCulka. Sawyer Rosenstein, Mark Ratterman, and Kat Robeson are on assignment. Amidst the backdrop of a year filled with unprecedented tragedy and national turmoil, which saw the assassinations of Dr. Martin Luther King and Senator Robert Kennedy, violence at the Democratic National Convention in Chicago this past summer, and continued demonstrations against the war in Vietnam, the United States has taken a tremendous gamble and in doing so has lifted up the hopes of the world. The Apollo 8 spacecraft with Mission Commander Frank Borman, Command Module Pilot Jim Lovell, and Lunar Module Pilot Bill Anders after taking their ship on a 20-hour, 10-orbit mission in which they flew to an altitude as low as 69 miles above the moon have set sail for home with their precious cargo of data and photography after proving that the Apollo Command Service Module is ready to support even more ambitious missions, including serving as the command and control vessel for future lunar landing attempts sometime later next year. The burn that brought the crew home happened at 1.10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, and lasted some 23 minutes and 23 seconds. Occurring with the Apollo capsule out of communication range, the timing led to some very anxious moments in mission control and around the world as we waited for word from the astronauts that the main engine had fired and was bringing Borman, Lovell, and Anders home. Let's recap some of the events of this historic day. A little before 5 a.m. Christmas Eve morning, the crew fired the main engine on the Apollo service module, the first of two lunar orbit insertion burns, to place the spacecraft in orbit around the moon, with the second burn to further adjust and create a much more circular orbit. One of the major tasks for this mission was to take detailed stereo photography of potential landing sites for future Apollo missions. The cameras were also used to photograph areas of the lunar surface of interests to scientists and geologists back on Earth. Engineering photography tasks were also a priority in order to examine and understand a possible, quote, cloud of contaminants that may surround a spacecraft, thus causing possible navigation issues. While in orbit, the crew used a four-and-a-half-pound television camera developed by RCA and pointed the camera through the windows of their spacecraft, taking those of us watching on television on a close-up tour of the lunar surface which has never been seen before at that altitude with human eyes. Talking Space captured the moment live. Theorizing here at that bright spot in the top left center of your picture is the Earth. It's not very clear. Thank you. 
very bright features you see are the new impact craters, and the uh, longer crater has been on the surface of the moon, while the more mottled and subdued it becomes. Uh, we are now coming up towards the Terminator, and I hope that soon we'll be able to show you the varying contrasts of light as we go into the darkness. We're now approaching a uh, series of small impact craters. There uh, is a dark area between us and them, which uh, could possibly be a old lava flow. You can see the uh, large mountains on the horizon now ahead of the spacecraft to the north of our track. We estimate it's about 325 miles to the horizon, just to help your reference. The intensity of the sun's reflection in this area uh, makes it uh, difficult for us to distinguish uh, uh, the features we see on the surface, and I suppose even harder on the television. But as we approach the Terminator and the uh, shadows become longer, you'll see a uh, marked change. There's a very dark crater uh, in the filling material of this valley in front of us now. It's rather unusual in that it's uh, sharply defined, uh, yet it's uh, dark all over its uh, interior walls, whereas most uh, new-looking craters are uh, very bright interior. Small impact uh, crater in front of us now in the, uh, in the little bar well-defined, quite new, and another one approaching. The spacecraft is uh, facing north from our track. We're going sideways to our left. You're now uh, seeing the Sea of Crises coming over the horizon. Uh, we believe the crater, the large uh, dark crater between uh, the spacecraft and the Sea of Crises is the uh, Condorcet Crater. The of crises is amazingly smooth uh, as far as the horizon past this uh, rather rough mountainous region in front of the spacecraft. Uh, Apollo 8, can you tell us uh, which window you're looking out? And uh, there's a large crater that looks like it's sticking up in the upper right-hand corner of our picture. Do you identify that one? Roger, we're just about to lose the lock here. Delta Rim variety. As 
middle of it. Crater that you're seeing now is about uh, 30 or 40 miles across. There's an interesting uh, rill directly in front of the uh, spacecraft now. Uh, running along the edge of a uh, small mountain. Uh, rather sinuous shape with uh, right angle turns. This area just to the west of the Sea of Crisis is called the Martian Sleep. And to the west of that is the Sea of Tranquility. Can you see the uh, fracture patterns going across the uh, body in front of us now, Houston? It doesn't quite stand up. Right, here's a series of uh, cracks or faults across the uh, the middle of the mare. Uh, they drop down in about three steps uh, to the south. The uh, parallel fault pattern to the north has a drop down in the center. I hope that all of you back on Earth can see what we mean when we say it's a rather foreboding horizon, a rather, rather stark and uh, unappetizing looking place. We're now going over our, approaching one of our future landing sites uh, selected in this smooth region to call the Sea of Tranquility. Uh, smooth in order to make it easy for the uh, initial landing attempts in order to uh, preclude uh, having to dodge mountains. Now you can see the uh, long shadows of the lunar su sunrise. The crew then ended their Christmas Eve transmission with a unique message that will live on forever in the memory of those who listened and no doubt will echo down through human history. We captured that message for you here. We are now approaching uh, lunar sunrise, and uh, for all the people back on Earth, the crew of Apollo 8 has a message that we would like to send to you. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the Earth, and the Earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And the evening and the morning were the first day. God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament, and divided the waters which were under the firmament, the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. And God called the firmament heaven, and the evening and the morning were the second day. the waters under the heaven be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters called these seas, and God saw that it was good. And from the crew of Apollo 8, we close with good night, good luck, a Merry Christmas, and 
With the eighth orbit underway, preparations for the critical trans-Earth injection burn began. The Apollo ship's main engine firing, slated to last a little over three minutes in duration, had to work. If it did not, there was no plan B to bring the crew back home. The trans-Earth injection burn would also occur during one of the 45-minute intervals where the Apollo 8 spacecraft was out of contact with the three ground stations back on Earth tracking the spacecraft and providing communications. This, along with the fact that the Apollo service propulsion system engine, located on the back of the service module, was the only ticket home for Borman, Lovell, and Anders, just added more to the anxiety of those monitoring the progress of the flight from the Mission Operations Control Room at the Manned Space Flight Center in Houston and to the rest of us watching on television or listening on radio around the world. This is what it sounded like when the word came down from Apollo 8's Jim Lovell on the status of the trans-Earth injection burn. Apollo 8, Houston. Apollo 8, would you confirm your burn time, please? With Apollo 8 confirmed on its way home, there was at least a little opportunity for those in the mission operations control room to breathe a little easier and celebrate the Christmas holiday. Shortly after we uh, acquired the spacecraft and established communications with the crew uh, here in the control center, our big display uh, up in the front changed from a lunar map to an Earth map, and uh, the colors on it are red and green. We also had a Christmas tree brought in, uh, and it's now standing uh, down in the front of the control center. Uh, 
Looks as if it stands about uh, six feet tall, and it's decorated with uh, lights and tinsel and uh, uh, with a big blue ornament up on top. Chief Astronaut Deke Slayton also came on the line to wish the crew a Merry Christmas and to extend words of congratulations. Morning, Apollo 8. Uh, Deke here. I'd just like to wish you all a very Merry Christmas on behalf of everyone in the control center and I'm sure everyone around the world. Uh, none of us ever expect to have a better Christmas present than this one. Uh, hope you get a good night's sleep from here on and enjoy your Christmas dinner tomorrow and look forward to seeing you in Hawaii on the 28th. Okay, later. We'll see you there. That was a, a very, very nice ride, that last one. This engine is as smooth as glass. Yeah, we gathered that. An outstanding job all the way around. Uh, thank everybody on the ground for us. Yeah, it's pretty clear we, we wouldn't be anywhere if we didn't have them doing it, boy, helping us out here. We concur in that. Well, I concur, too. Even Mr. Kraft does something right once in a while. He got tired of waiting for you to talk and went home. Okay. And in a moment of comedic brevity, geologist astronaut Harrison Jack Schmidt read a poem up to his students, a bit of a rewrite of the Clement Clark Moore classic, Twas a Night Before Christmas. All right. And uh, we've got a couple of words for you. Jack's been watching you since... Uh LOI, and he has a few words he wants it to give you. Typhoid Jack uh, here, and uh, we've got some good words here that originated at the Cape with a bunch of friends of yours, and uh, it's sort of in a paraphrase of a poem that uh, you're probably familiar with. Uh, do you read me, Apollo 8? Okay, twas the night before Christmas and way out in space. The Apollo 8 crew had just won the moon race. The headsets were hung by the consoles with care in hopes that Chris Kraft soon would be there. Now Frank Borman was nestled all snug in his bed while visions of rest mats danced in his head. And Jim Lovell in his couch and Anders in the bay were racking their brains over a computer display. When out of the disky there rose such a clatter, Frank sprang from his bed to see what was the matter. Away to the sextant he flew like a flash to make sure they weren't going to crash. The light on the breast of the moon's jagged crust gave a luster of green cheese to the gray lunar dust. When what to his wondering eyes should appear but a Burma shave sign saying Kilroy was here. But Frank was no fool, he knew pretty quick that they had been first, this must be a trick. More rapid than rockets, his curses they came. He turned to his crewmen and called them a name. Now level, now Anders. Now don't think I'd fall for that old joke you've written up on the wall. They spoke not a word but grinning like elves and laughed at their joke in spite of themselves. Frank sprang to his couch. To the ship gave a thrust and away they all flew past the gray lunar dust. But we heard them explain ere they flew around the moon, Merry Christmas to Earth. We'll be back there real soon. Great job, gang. Thank you very much. That's a very good poem. But in order to win the race, you got to end up on the carrier. We'll see you there.
Hey, Jack, you really got Bill trained. <laughs> okay. I, I certainly hope so. You did pretty well, Jim. You must have talked on the way out there. Uh, that rendition of the night before Christmas was read up to the crew by uh, astronaut uh, Harrison Schmidt, Jack Schmidt, who uh, worked with Lovell uh, quite extensively prior to the mission in uh, going over the uh, lunar sightings and uh, photography that he would do in lunar orbit. At uh, 90 hours, 3 minutes into the flight, this is Apollo Control. NASA flight controllers Charles Dietrich, Milt Weinler, and Jay Green, who were coming off of their shift in mission control, stayed behind to talk to members of the press about the events of these past few historic hours and what was next for the flight. Our microphones were there, and we bring you that press conference unfiltered. Okay, for the uh, purposes of the transcript, I'll introduce these gentlemen again. Uh, on my right is <coughs> Charles Dietrich, the uh, return to Earth officer on this shift. Uh, Milton Wendler is the flight director, and uh, Jay Green is the flight dynamics officer. And uh, we'll start with a, just a quick run through on the shift from uh, Milton Wendler. Okay, I'll repeat my opening remarks. Whoopee! Uh, Y'all not a very. Yes, you can quote me on that. Uh, we're all obviously elated. We realize that we're not home yet, but it's, we feel like it's downhill from here. And it actually turns out that the people that you see, uh, Chuck here, the return to Earth officer, and Jay, the flight dynamics officer, are also the ones that have played a uh, big part in the, in the last uh, seven or eight hours prior to the entry that uh, happens that our, our team will be on in. Uh, running through, so we, we know we've got that ahead of us, and uh, we... We have one more shift of uh, relatively light activity, and then we can get squared away uh, for the entry, hoping that the previous teams, of course, will leave us in time shape for that. But uh, we f do feel like that the, the big thing was the TEI burn, and we've got that behind us. Essentially, the, the burn, as you copied, were all was, uh, was nominal. We looked at the engine performance after it was over. It was all good. And uh, the two gentlemen here can, can answer the, the questions and details on the, uh, on the trajectory. And we hope that you'll be there with us. If, if we look like zombies, why, we watch the LOI, of course. We watch the TV, and uh, we tried to get some rest today. And we watched the, uh, oh, we were there at a, a little bit early, trying to get ourselves pulled together for the uh, last couple of pre-revs there and, uh, and have just now gotten off. Uh, so we're, we're not in the best of shape ourselves. The crew's in, in pretty good condition, I guess I'd have to say. Uh, uh, I guess I'll have to make the, the medical report tonight by default since we didn't, didn't have the doctor with us. But you're aware that the last couple of revs, we, we pared some of the activity down to let them rest. And I thought that Lovell sounded quite a bit better when he came up to, to get himself squared away for the uh, alignments and the TEI maneuvers. Right now, uh, Borman and, and Lovell are asleep. You're, you're probably aware of all of this. And uh, Anders is awake. We just had a, just as I was ha had handed over and was, and was coming back over here, we had a temporary loss of voice column of the spacecraft. We had data. We lost the data for a short while, but uh, then we lost the voice communication for a while. 
apparently some uh, some plugs were disconnected. That's really about all I know about that, except everybody's on board is okay, of course. And all their systems are still okay. They've been performing fabulously. And uh, we we finished uh, finished up with, with some small sighting. It's not clear to me yet, and I was talking to the flight planning people, the flight activities people, that that we didn't get some of the data on the backside of the of the moon the last two or three revs. We we got the the, the tape dump uh, dumps back, uh, but the quality of it was uh, really a mistake in the way they played the voice part of it back, and uh, we had to replay that. And they were still looking at some of the information, so it's it may be that we didn't really miss everything that that we thought in the last couple of revs there. But all that'll come up later on. We we did the. Uh, First cislunar navigation on the way out, the one we were trying to do pretty early in the game. Uh, did about two thirds of it really, and as you probably copied on the air to ground level, reported that he was pretty tired and he didn't think he could keep going on it. So we uh, we certainly agreed with him shutting down on that and, and going to the to the rest mode. And I guess we left it uh, about 200,000 away from the Earth and uh, going about 5,300 feet a second and about 70. Uh, 6,000 um, nautical miles, uh, 7,600 nautical miles above the moon, and I hope we don't get into too much of a of a thing tonight on on the reference and all of that. I was kind of interested in in a couple of the in the previous press conference when we had a little discussion on on trains and service stations and things like that. There's just one other thing I'd like to make. You know, several people have have been up here with me, and different people have been present with, with the other flight directors, and, and I'm sure everybody is aware, and certainly y'all are aware, that this is just the top of the iceberg, really. Uh, there's literally thousands of people working on, on the flight. It's done, I think, to date phenomenally well, and it's a result of, of many man months of, of man years of hard work. And there's, there's many, many people uh, in the control center. There's lots of people spread all over the world, particularly uh, I understand it that this you might uh, play a portion of the press conference as to some of the recovery forces, and I don't know how many thousand men that that constitutes. But to a serviceman, particularly a Navy man, it's uh, the Christmas season is pretty precious to him. They they get away uh, for long tours of duty on on the water, and uh, they look forward usually to being at home for Christmas. And there's a lot of them that that don't make it this year. And uh, we certainly appreciate the efforts that they're going to to, to support the uh, recovery part of the operation. And we're we're headed home now, and uh, we're going to expect some fine support in the next couple of days here from them. So with that, uh, unless you have anything else there, Doug, why we'll turn it over for questions. I will open up for questions. Art? Uh, what does the situation look like as far as uh, mid-course corrections on the way back? took in some preliminary tracking data, and uh, based on that, we need about, uh, it's going to be very small, like six feet per second, and this will be an elapsed time of about 104 hours uh, is about the time of this mid-course, and the flight plan is what it's planned nominally, and it is going to be about six foot per second. And is that the only one, then, that you'll need? Uh, well, possibly? that will correct us back to... Uh, to trim the entry conditions as best we know the trajectory uh, back to what exactly what we want and then with subsequent tracking data and based on how well the maneuver was performed we may need one two more 
mid courses so we're always we're always plan to do one at entry interface minus two hours and we will do that one unless it's less than two tenths of a foot per second and i really can't predict how it's going to be but we have always set up to do that one if we have to let me ask one more if i may on the seventh rev level in addition to commenting on the landing site also talked about sunrise on the moon and this haze that apparently precedes it and i wondered if any of you all would care to speculate as to what that might be well i i certainly wouldn't uh this gentleman would like to uh, first of all, I, I must not have been in the control center when, when he made that comment, and I know that this morning that uh, there was an expert on it talked about that, and I don't, I, I really can't contribute any to that. Uh, there'll be millions of people, I guess, studying all that. I was always amused by some of the earlier shots where everybody said, "See, that proves that it's soft," and the other people said, "See, that proves it's hard," and all that. The, you know, the surveyors and all that. So uh, I, I, I don't know anything about that, really. Does anyone? know up there know who wrote that uh, parody of the night before christmas it's did you know doug no i understood it was Some somebody in mission planning and analysis division uh, could, could we find out yes i'm sure we can it's it may be a, a group of people I, I got the impression that it came from from kind of a joint effort but perhaps it was just me since all the radioactive, that's me. Since all the burns have been so good, so almost perfect, uh, how has this changed your evaluation of, of the whole system? Are you, if there is going to be a next stand around the moon, are you going to be just as concerned about as to whether or not it will fire on time and fire correctly? I'm going to be. No, we we thought we thought before we left we had a good a good system, and you probably aware that uh, we have burned it many times. The total burn times have have been in excess of, of what we have. We didn't have any any single burn this long, but we were confident in the system, but uh, and and it's worked out very well. Uh, maybe I'll I'll feel a little bit better, but I I can see if I happen to be on the shift waiting for TEI, I'm going to feel the same way, I expect, next time, and the time after that, too. But as far as a statistical thing, obviously, you got to feel the more time you do it, the, the better you've got to feel. But the, it, well, we always felt technically, you know, unemotionally, we look at it and say, yeah, that's, that's a good system. Emotionally, well, you've got to say, you know, it's a great feeling when you come around the moon and you get the AOS at the right time and he tells you the residuals are almost nothing. After you acquired the uh, spacecraft signal the last go around the moon, uh, there was, there seemed to be, uh, there was a period of a couple of minutes before you got voice contact. Uh, was there any concern? What kind of signal did you, re did you receive initially? that convinced you that the spacecraft had successfully performed the SPS bird behind the moon? And was there any concern uh, because you didn't immediately get voice contact? Uh, I can probably answer that. Our best 
indication that the burn was performed nominally was the acquisition time. And I would say it was within three seconds of the planned acquisition time that we got the report. I believe it was Honeysuckle at RF acquisition. Was there some communications problem there that you didn't immediately receive voice contact? Let, let me define acquisition. To, to <coughs> us in the control center, acquisition comes when the s station first says that, that they have a signal from the vehicle. Now, the signal that made us feel so good was not actually a sufficient quality to, to pass the voice information, and the TM was not too good either, although the TM improved and, in fact, Jay was given data back which told him pretty much that it, it looked good before even we, we could get the voice. So the acquisition that he refers to is, 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 is not a good quality voice that perhaps you had referred to acquisition. Was there some voice that uh, you didn't pass on to us uh, that you received? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, which meal is the Christmas meal for the three gentlemen? Uh, you mean the, the what food item? Well, first of all, talk to talk about your carol. I, I doubt if we'll send any carols up. We we may decide to do that. We are in a in a in a semi-relaxed mode right now. You might say, uh, kind of uh, getting spend a day here, maybe. Uh, calming down and then another day building back up again for the entry. Um, we, we don't have quite the situation we had in some of the earlier missions where we had two circuits, uh, but we do have the capability of, of sending voice up or, or something up on the uplink and still being in a receive mode on the downlink. We can do that. We, we may choose to do that. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I'm really not going to worry about anything until tomorrow night at 9 o'clock when I go back on duty. Let them worry about all that. And now your other question about the meal. Uh, I, I, I'm sorry, I can't. You, you want to know what they're going to eat? Is that what you mean? The Christmas there's, meal, there's I guess, is going to be the day's meal. I, you want to know when they eat, perhaps, today, supposedly? Uh, they're going to eat whenever they get in, ready to. Isn't one of the meals a built-in uh, Christmas meal with turkey or something like that? Which one is it? The first meal when, the, when uh, Lovell and Andrews wake up? Uh, well, the first time I've got down here for them to... To eat, well, Borman eats when he wakes up, which uh, he's been, uh, uh, a, I mean, awake so long, he may sleep for a whole day. I don't know about that, but around 93 hours, which is two or three hours from now, I guess you could count that as a, if you want to consider that a Christmas meal. That's probably not a very good answer, but I look for them all to sleep for quite a while, and then the first meal that they have, I think, after they've they've rested, I think they'll count that as their Christmas meal. That's what I would do. Christmas is what you make it, isn't it? Just trying to get uh, clear, the person who <coughs> said, uh, be informed there is a Santa Claus, that was Lovell? It sounded like Lovell to me. Uh, that's. And who, who said later on, uh, that was a very nice ride, the last one. This engine is the smoothest one. I believe that was Borman. That was the voice that, was, that I understood that was today. Borman. And uh, a final question. Um, I think the nominal uh, burn to return from the moon is something like 171 seconds, which would get you back in 90-some uh, uh, hours. And it was announced uh, before the mission that they were going to, instead of 170 seconds, they were going to burn for about 200 seconds to get home 24 hours early. And uh, I take it from the burn time that that plan was followed through. You did burn to get home in 69 hours, in other words. 
Well, not 69, no. Was it? Uh, in return 50 time. Something. The, no, I guess it is 60. No, well, the ignition was about 89 hours. It was 89, 19, 15.67 seconds. 89 hours, 19 minutes, 15.67 seconds when they lighted. And uh, splash, let me get a good number on splash, will be about uh, 147 hours, 3 minutes and 34 seconds. So that's you got to give me a few minutes on that one. But uh, that's about uh, 50 hours, 57 hours from TEI to entry. So we did elect to come back a day earlier. But that's your it question. It is the early return. It, it was the thing that we, it was the plan that we intended to use when we lifted off. Yes. It was a, a return to 146 hours approximately in the Pacific. Yes. As opposed to the earlier one of 170 hours, 24 yeah, it, it was no, it was a nominal thing that we lifted off with. In fact, the maneuver was almost exactly what was planned. Milt, on uh, Apollo Seven, they had a, an anomaly sheet or something like that where they lifted any anything that went wrong, any type of glitch, whether it was solved or not. Yeah. They had to wait for the ship to get back or not, or whether I think you even included some pre-launch. Do you keep that on this mission? And if you do, how many entries do you have on that? Well, uh, you could play the game, you know, what's an anomaly? Yes, there are probably a whole bunch of people keeping logs like that. We have a short one up in the, uh, or one up in the control center that uh, the uh, assistant flight director <coughs> keeps. Uh, the last time I looked at it, it had perhaps seven or eight entries, but some of these were not real anomalies. Uh, like, you know, the Mae West is inflated. As far as we know, it's still inflated, stuffed under a couch somewhere. And we haven't even worried about uh, asking them yet, is it, is it still inflated? So we've got that, for example, listed. I don't really count that as an anomaly. Although the fact that it inflated by itself is will be one, I'm sure. So that's one. Does that answer your question? Uh, uh, there's, there's essentially no real anomalies. Uh, uh, I mean, any serious ones. These are all real small type things. Well, that pretty well answers it. I think they had something like uh, just the number of entries, which maybe were you know not really problems. Mm -hmm. And the other one was in the 30s. I That's believe. right. Now, by this time on seven, as you're yeah. aware, there were several that were yeah. pretty, pretty. Uh, uh, they were substantial. I mean, not substantial, but you know, they were there were things that we really wanted to track down, and people working pretty hard on them. Is this a better bird than seven? Is this what? Is this a better bird than seven? I'd have to say it is. The one you've got, you know, is always the best one. You, you don't consider the uh, window fogging problem, uh, which was apparent during the TV transmission, to be a serious problem? Well, uh, no, I guess you couldn't hardly classify it as a, as a serious problem. The main windows that we plan to use uh, rendezvous windows are essentially usable and essentially clear. Um, I, I think it's kind of unfortunate, though, that, that, it, that it happens, and I sure hope we can find out why. It's hard, bad to have a window you can't use. Well, are you saying that nothing of any real significance has gone wrong in this flight? I would say that, yes. Um, uh, would you mind about saying, saying it? Yeah. Yeah, nothing has gone wrong of any significance. 
your happiest clams. It's uh, amazing. The only thing that's gone wrong is when I tried to explain which way the moon, uh, which way the North Pole was the other night. Did, did that all get squared away now? Merry Christmas. Splashdown for Apollo 8 is expected to be at about 10.51 a.m. Eastern Standard Time in the Pacific Ocean on December 27th. The aircraft carrier USS Yorktown will be on station awaiting the command module's return after its 147-hour mission. After receiving a preliminary medical examination, Frank Borman, Jim Lovell, and Bill Anders will then be flown from the USS Yorktown back to the Manned Space Flight Center in Houston, Texas. As for the Apollo 8 command module itself, it will receive a preliminary engineering assessment and will be safed, then offloaded from the Yorktown on Fort Island in Hawaii to undergo further deactivation. It will then be flown to the North American Rockwell facility in Downey, California for a full post-flight engineering evaluation. For now, that's it from Talking Space Headquarters in New York. For Sawyer Rosenstein, Mark Raderman, and Kat Robeson, this is Gene McCoka saying season's greetings, and thank you for joining us on this truly monumental Christmas day in the history of space exploration. <laughs>